This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Silicon Network from SubChina. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and there's this new restaurant in town called Karma. There's no menu; you just get what you deserve. My co-host is John Pazin, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar with the Sinosplice.com. And don't mess with John. He knows judo, karate, jujitsu, taekwondo, and many other dangerous words. In the second part of this two-part series, John and I will talk about specific strategies and tips you can employ to improve your listening skills, specifically in the areas where you struggle. Guest interviews with Gabrielle Barnett from Jamaica, whose quest to learn Chinese has opened doors and taken her around the world, far beyond anything she could have imagined. All this and more. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States, and this is John Paz, and I'm in Shanghai, China. Hi everybody. All right, guys. Before we kick off today, we have a listener question, and just so you know,、uh, we appreciate all the questions that we did get. A, a number of people have sent those in, and we're going to be answering some of these questions over the next few episodes. We may even do an episode. To answer some of these specific questions, but today one of our questions comes from a listener、uh, in a discussion in our WeChat group from Christina. Now she had listened to our episode from last week, and in that episode we talked about how it is easier to understand female speakers of Chinese than it is male speakers. And she was asking, "Is, is this real? I mean,、uh, is there any research behind this?、Uh, is it just something based on your experience or anecdotal evidence?" And that was a good, a good question. And we have some answers for that. Yeah. So I remember hearing about this when I was、uh, doing my master's in applied linguistics, but I didn't remember the source. So I decided I would look it up, and、um, I did find the study that I think、uh, was the one I was referring to. Can't remember exactly. But it is from the University of Indiana, 2001. Bradlow, Toretta, and Pisoni, and it's called "Intelligibility of Normal Speech: Global and Fine-Grained Acoustic Phonetic Talker Characteristics."、Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, the findings were: female talkers are more intelligible as a group than male talkers. We found that talkers with larger vowel spaces were generally more intelligible than talkers with reduced spaces. All right. So, females are easier, right? But I kept searching, kept researching, and I found another study which kind of presents the opposite、uh, viewpoint. That one did listening tests: 137 male and 225 female. Let them listen to something. Male, female speakers then did comprehension tests, and analysis of variance showed no significant difference in listening scores for male and female subjects. So there you have it. Different research gives different results. I personally. Do think that males are harder, but it might not be any like physiological or、mm-hmm. you know, hard reason. It might be more like a social thing because there are so many complex social interactions, right? Definitely, and that's that was an interesting point that was brought up in in the discussion in our group. That yeah,、uh, there can be those things beyond just how they're speaking per se. That affect the、uh, intelligibility of of someone speaking. So, but、uh, I, I think it's a really interesting thing. It seems like, well,、uh, yes, maybe, but I I think in the end, if whatever is easiest for you to listen, or maybe it doesn't really matter, it might just actually depend on the person. Yeah, I mentioned in the last podcast, but in general, I feel that female speakers are easier, but they're definitely easier to understand male speakers and more difficult to understand female speakers. So、uh, just be aware of this factor as you. Work hard in improving your listening ability, and guess what? We have more advice for you today. That's right. And today is part two of our topic of improving your listening skills. So last time we talked about factors that might affect the difficulty of listening comprehension. You know, things like male or female, young or old, formal and informal. And so it's good to be aware of these as you you know engage in various types of activities to improve your listening. Yeah, and the important thing about this is really is recognizing you know there are some natural difficulties and don't beat yourself up about it. Right, and so we referenced a study、uh, last time, but we didn't really talk about it specifically. But today we're going to get into some of the very specific、uh, strategies recommended. But first, I want to bring up something that's mentioned in the beginning of that paper, and I think it's really important for all of us to be aware of this, and that is that traditional classes often don't emphasize listening enough.
Mm-hmm. So um, various studies have shown this to be true. Um, that paper was largely focused on English, um, even though the same you know the same idea carries across to other languages. But um, I also think that with Chinese classes, a lot of times tones may be emphasized over actual listening comprehension, especially in the beginning. So it's almost like the little time that's devoted to listening is divided between tones and comprehension. So it might even be more true for Chinese. All right. Thanks for that, John. And so let's just cut into this, though. Um, We're going to talk about the three main types of strategies uh, that we use to for listening comprehension, especially when you don't understand something or it's a little bit difficult. And the research has shown that learners that use these strategies actually do better. They make it to a higher level. They learn faster. So these are not just, you know, mm-hmm. just random things. These will really help you. Yeah, there's academically research tested, all that type of stuff. So, all right. So the first one is cognitive strategies. All right, sounds like a pretty complex thing there, John. But uh, I like to just call this reasoning strategies. It's kind of like using your intellect, your smarts, your intelligence. So the two main ones are bottom-up and top-down. So to quote the paper, bottom-up strategies are word-for-word translation, arranging the rate of speech, repeating the oral text, and concentrating on characteristics of the text. Top-down strategies involve forecasting, guessing, explaining, and visualization. So um, the top-down strategies are often more used by advanced learners. So top-down, you can think about, okay, what's, what's the context? Um, what is this person probably you know, wanting to, to get across? And you can kind of reason out what, what these gaps, the things you didn't understand, are probably getting at. Um, so it's not understanding every word. Whereas beginners tend to focus on the bottom-up strategies, the word-for-word translation ones. That's right. So who listening has ever been listening to someone speak Chinese and trying to translate it into English or your native language while you're listening? All right. If you've ever done that, that is a cognitive bottom-up strategy right there. So you're trying to, you know, listen, uh, use your knowledge of the language and translate it into something that's more, I guess, comprehensible or something that's easier for you to understand. Yeah. And the research talks about, you know, of course, having a better foundation in pronunciation and grammar and vocabulary is going to help with your listening comprehension. You know, vocabulary, if you don't know any words, of course you're going to have terrible listening comprehension. But this is especially true for this kind of bottom-up cognitive approach. You know, you're listening to them word by word or character by character, and if you don't know the vocabulary and the grammar, then you're really going to struggle. Another thing that you've probably done is you've asked someone to speak slowly, right? That is a bottom-up strategy, all right? So this is a cognitive bottom-up strategy. You speaking too fast, you know, so just speak a little slower. The other thing, too, is asking someone to repeat themselves. Maybe, you know, it was too fast or you didn't have time to translate. So so these are some real common bottom-up strategies that I'm sure everybody has used to try to understand uh, what is being said. Yeah, I think the bottom-up strategies don't really need to be taught. I mean, they need to be used. They're what people are going to default to. But what needs to be taught is when you should be using bottom-up, when you should be using top-down. And some people don't use top-down when they should. So if you've ever been in that situation where you're listening, you understand everything, and then you don't understand like one word and you just freeze and you just can't understand the rest of what's said, then you're too you're being overly reliant on your bottom-up strategy when you should be kind of taking a top-down approach. Like, okay, I understood the first half. I know it's about this. Mm-hmm. When we get to this point, I don't understand that, so it probably is this. And then if you can actually listen to the rest of it, you can probably make a good conclusion uh, using this kind of bottom, yeah, using this kind of top-down approach. So I'll, I'll give you a quick little example. So let's say you're in China. It starts raining. You're on the street. You're with a Chinese friend who doesn't speak any English. They point to a shop, and you hear something about rain and something. They're pointing at an umbrella. Okay, uh, you know you could probably deduce at this stage that they're like. We need an umbrella. I want to buy an umbrella, right? Uh, so, you know, that's just kind of using the situation to kind of figure it out. What's likely going on? You understood some of the things, but maybe not every word, but you get the meaning because of the context of the whole situation. And you're, you're guessing. You're filling in the gaps. 
But I think that's a good example because some people might actually get caught up with specific words and being like, wait, what are you saying? Like as it's raining harder and harder and they're getting wet. Um, so <laughs> yeah, to the bone. this is something you have to, yeah, you have to remember. And I think, you know, one of the other top-down strategies that you probably have encountered and encourage you to use is sometimes, you know, there's visual aids. You know, teachers do this a lot in the classroom where they may not give the actual definition of a word, but they, they say it and they got a picture of it, right? There's a visualization or they're pointing at what it is or they're trying to maybe give some more indication of what they're speaking about uh, to help you understand. So I, I think, you know, some people, they say, I, you know, they might be inclined to say, I want to know the exact translation of what they're saying. I want to know the exact word. And that's going to begin relying on more of those bottom-up cognitive strategies. Well, hey, let yourself, let your brain fill in the gaps. You may be wrong sometimes, uh, but, you know, focus on trying to also use those top-down strategies of inferring, uh, guessing, and then, you know, maybe you repeat it uh, back or, and try to use it yourself and maybe you use it right and maybe you did get it. And, and that gives you a little more confidence to start, you know, using those skills and give you more, um, you know, confidence in your ability to apply a top-down strategy. All right. So now let's look at the next one, uh, metacognitive strategies. So I think uh, people are more and more familiar with the word meta these days. Mm-hmm. But um, if we're talking metacognitive, then you're not dealing uh, directly with the language itself. You're, you're kind of looking at the situation as a whole. You're stepping back and you're looking at the situation. And then you have strategies for dealing with the situation. Okay, so there is a lot more to this, and obviously explaining something that's more meta <laughs> can be you know, a little more abstract. Okay, I'm going to read a part of this paper here that they're uh, specifically talking about uh, the skills that listeners will use uh, that are like metacognitive strategies. Uh, one says utilizing their prior knowledge and predictions to create theories on the text or a listening. Uh, two, connecting new information with their continuing predictions. Three, making deductions to fill comprehension breaks. And four, assessing their predictions. And five, improving their theories. So I think what this is, it's, it's once again, it's drawing a lot more on context. It's, it's, it's going to be maybe using your outside information. Uh, maybe, for example, you know a lot about an industry or about a job or about, you know, a restaurant or something from your experience in your native language. And now you're in that same exact uh, situation in a Chinese-speaking environment, and you know in English how things should be done or, or where things are supposed to go or how a process is supposed to be followed, and you're using that knowledge and leveraging that to understand what might be going on in Chinese and trying to understand uh, you know, what is being spoken uh, or said to you. Yeah, and I think this is something you might be familiar with if you've ever done like a reading comprehension exercises for, say, the HSK. Um, it's, we're talking about listening today, but reading comprehension, uh, often uh, like a, a teacher who's helping you get through these types of reading comprehension questions, they'll emphasize these types of metacognitive strategies. So, for example, you see what the topic is. Before you even read it, you can kind of make some guesses about what they're going to be saying. So, for example, if it's the HSK and it's talking about you know the development of China uh, in the 1970s. Probably wouldn't be about that, but suppose it is. It's not going to be a critical uh, look at the failures of the Communist Party, right? Like you can <laughs> you can uh, be pretty sure of that before you even start, start reading. So uh, there's lots of things you can do like this and uh, don't just go into it like this, this wide-eyed, like, you know, tourist looking at the tall buildings. You can kind of know what to expect. Yeah, exactly. And I think an, another uh, good one, I, I think about this, uh, I, am, I am a dungeon master for my kids' uh, D, dungeon, <laughs> dungeon D&D group, okay? And they metagame all the time. They use their outside <laughs> world information and try to apply it with their characters in the scenario. And, I, and, and when they start doing it, I call them out and I say, hey, look, look, you, you know, I'm, you, I, I throw some real curveballs to them when they really do that stuff. Anyway, but let's think about it this way. Let's say you have a friend, speaks Chinese. He's native Chinese, whatever. He speaks English. Uh, you understand that he absolutely, uh, you know, loves hamburgers, okay? You now go to a restaurant in China and speaking Chinese, and he says something to him, and you think you hear him say, I hate hamburgers. I don't want anything else but a hamburger, okay? Right there is a metacognitive thing. You're like, wait a second. I know he likes hamburgers. I must have misheard, right? And there could be some sort of vice versa as well, where you know something from the outside about that person, 
where now you're hearing it in Chinese, you're like, maybe, ah, this is what they mean because I already know this piece of information about them. So would it be a metacognitive strategy to say that um, Dungeons and Dragons DM experience doesn't really apply to learning Chinese? Oh, it's just like metagaming, meta, meta stuff. You're using outside information, <laughs> okay. right? That's the thing is you're, you're using outside information that you didn't learn in Chinese and applying that to understanding what's going on in Chinese. Yeah, I'm just kidding. All right, we get it. Um, and the, the Chinese situation has the advantage of not being fantastical and invented by people. So um, that type of stuff does work. Now, uh, there's one uh, benefit they do talk about using metacognitive strategies, okay, uh, that they mention here in the paper. And this was something interesting. It popped out to you and me, John, is that it said skilled listeners that use these type of strategies, um, they use it to redirect their attention back to the activity when there's a comprehension failure, while less skilled listeners cease listening, all right? So think about this. I've done this, John, where I'm like, I'm lost in the conversation. I checked out. I'm like, just, mm-hmm, doy, 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 right? But more skilled listeners, and it might not be me at times, you know, they're, they're going to say, hey, wait a second, I'm lost here. I'm going to try to look at the situation. I'm going to try to maybe use some of these strategies to figure out what's going on and jump, get back in the game. Yeah, so you can think of metacognitive strategies as kind of stepping back when you're starting to get so absorbed that like your face is getting closer and closer to the other person, right? You want to, you want to step back. Yeah, you need to maintain some of your consciousness out of the game, you know, to remember the big picture. And one thing that I thought was interesting about um, the information presented in the study was that females tend to be better at metacognitive uh, strategies than males. So uh, keep that in mind, ladies and guys. Okay, now the third strategy to improve your listening is called socio-effective strategies. All right. Now, what does this mean, John? So students should know how to decrease anxiety, feel confident during listening activities, and raise motivation and improving listening skill. So it's kind of like monitoring and adjusting your own emotional state because the calmer you are, the better you're going to do at these listening tasks. Yeah. So, I mean, think about it. This is something very common. Uh, don't worry if you are afflicted by anxiety when someone starts speaking Chinese to you. All right. That, that's a that's a very common thing. Or they speak very fast. Like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Or, you know, maybe you look to someone who speaks Chinese better than you look to them for help or something like that. Hey, part of this is like, hey, just just get a grip. Calm down. Be mindful. Maybe what you're feeling and, uh, you know, check in with yourself and uh, calm your anxiety and just, hey, go with it. Yeah. So you can't just drop into a lotus position when someone starts, uh, you know, saying things you understand. But uh, keep in mind. You can use some of the stuff from uh, that we talked about last podcast. Um, if you know your level is not high and you know that that old man is probably going to be hard to understand, then you can kind of either brace yourself or maybe find someone else to talk to if there's some information you're trying to get. So you just, just keep this in mind. So, I mean, uh, another situation where you might encounter this type of thing, if you ever had tried to go talk to someone of the uh, who you quite thought was good looking or who you're interested in or whatever and you get really nervous okay same thing so and uh, same type of situation right but this time hey we're trying to do something in chinese so i think for you know socio-effective strategies um you know there's a lot of things you can do but i mentioned before just mindfulness being recognizing what you are feeling and even when you're going into a situation where you're speaking chinese and you know maybe you've clammed up or you've just had a hard time really speaking hey recognize that go back and think about that what was i feeling what was really going on, you know, and try to maybe sort out what are your feelings were, what was your anxieties about, and identify that. And when anticipate that when you're going to go into another situation, hey, I'm today, I have this, you know, language partner, or I have this situation I'm going to where I got to speak Chinese. I typically have these types of experiences. What are your what's your game plan? What's your strategy to be able to handle uh, those anxieties you might be feeling uh, when you need to speak Chinese? Yeah, and I also want to share something kind of personal here. Something you said, Jared, brought this up. Um, so how do you reduce anxiety? For many people, if it's like a listening, talking type thing, it's planning. So you can kind of plan what you want to say. You can think about what they might say and then how you might respond to that. And what you what you made me think of, Jared, was uh, when I was in high school and I liked this, this one girl in my Spanish class, uh, I started thinking of excuses to call her. But then the horrible thing is you call her and you don't know what to say. 
So I would like do this planning. I would like write these lists of things that I could talk to her about so that I could be sure that I wouldn't have nothing to say. And if, you know, worst case scenario, I went through it all really quick and I'm just like, ah, bye. Uh, But the planning really helped. By the way, that girl became my first girlfriend. And and the same thing worked when I was uh, working on my Chinese in the very early days. You know, I have to go to the store to buy something. Um, I know I'm going to have to ask about it. I'm afraid I'm not going to understand. So then I do a bunch of planning, write things down. uh, And that worked too. So uh, this is important. And the planning does really help affect your your emotional state, which then improves listening and improves all the results and improves your Chinese. Exactly. And that's like that. It goes along with one of those strategies of like when you're going to go into a situation where you're going to be speaking Chinese and you know what the situation is, you start you know, learning the words that you might use. This this is exactly, this is exactly the situation you're talking about. But even despite your best planning, sometimes you're going to get a a curveball. Along the same lines, John, I remember there once there was this girl I I really liked and uh, I looked her up in the phone book. Yeah, that was the thing back when I was uh, in college. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and there was only two uh, listings in the phone book with the last name. And so I called one. It was her grandparents. All right. And... (laughs) It was like, oh, I was so embarrassed. He's like, oh yes, that's my granddaughter. You you must call her. And 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 I was like, oh, so embarrassed, right? <laughs> so when that happens, right? When you call her grandparents instead of her, right? What? How are you going to handle that, right? Um, and so just recognizing, <laughs> hey, you know, some you're going to get these curveballs. Some things are not always going to go right for you. Um, how are you going to handle that? Yeah, and you can't plan for everything. Obviously, you can't plan for random grandmothers, but a little extra planning will help carry over and it'll help put your mind at ease and it'll make everything go more smoothly. Definitely, definitely. So, and I once again, I go mindfulness. And it's part of this too, John, I, I got to say is sometimes we just really lack the confidence. And I have seen situations, you know, with people where it's like their anxiety is just stopping them from speaking and they'll use me as a crutch. Or are these some, and I have <laughs> been in a situation like this where I just, I don't say anything. I'm like, I don't know. I just tingle dong or whatever. Like, you you do it. And then they, oh, they're like, oh. And then they, they finally draw upon their skills and you start speaking. And lo and behold, you communicated and they understood. And then all of a sudden, woo, you're, they're, they're communicating in Chinese. And then they come away from it and they're like, wow, I, I did that. And I'm like, yes, I knew you could do it. And they did. And, and so I think part of sometimes even those things is just can have a little faith in yourself. Uh, have a little faith in your studies, your skills, the training, the time you put in. And, yeah, it's not all going to go right. That's okay. Okay, so those are our three types of strategies for better listening comprehension. Number one are the cognitive strategies, uh, bottom up, top down. The other are metacognitive strategies. And then the third, social. <laughs> what is it? And the third, socio-effective strategies. Uh, so one quick reminder, you do need the basics. You got to have you know, the vocabulary, the grammar, pronunciation, being able to understand the actual syllables that are coming out of people's mouth. Um, so don't think you can just be smart about it and skip the fundamentals. But if you're especially struggling with listening, and that's not surprising because that happens in the classroom a lot, then getting a bit smarter about how you approach listening comprehension could make a huge difference. And we'd love to hear about it if it does. And, and this is the thing, guys, like maybe you were listening to this episode and you're expecting all these little tips and tricks and things you could do to like improve your listening. We're talking about strategies here, guys. So and, and, and some of these things are they're higher level things. You can uh, once you understand this, you can hopefully understand how they can apply in a lot of different situations. And you might be aware of a greater range of skills and things that you could rely on to improve your uh, skill listening skills as opposed to someone saying, oh, here's three tricks that work for me. Right. So uh, we hope you guys really can get a lot out of this and think about it, analyze your situations, and see how these principles apply to your own unique situation and leverage them to improve your listening skills. All right, so don't give up. Keep at it, and you can learn Chinese. You can definitely learn Chinese. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is... The Chinese Pronunciation Wiki. All right. By All Set Learning. All right. Okay, so this is a free resource. Uh, If you know Wikipedia, then you know the basic format. This one is all about pronunciation. 
And uh, you really have to have a good foundation and pronunciation to have good listening. Uh, we talked about that today. And uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people do when they start learning Chinese is that they kind of learn pinyin and they just skip to the next thing. But um, one thing I've found is that people that don't really know the pinyin syllables very well often have trouble with listening comprehension. It's because they hear a syllable and they're not even sure if what they think they might be hearing even exists as a syllable. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I, th- I think I heard XA. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a syllable, so you did not hear that. Uh, I, no, I heard Z-H-I-A. Well, no, you didn't because that's not a syllable. Yeah, exactly. So having a good, strong foundation and pinyin can really help your listening comprehension down the road. So we'll put some links to uh, the Chinese pronunciation wiki, things like pinyin gachas, the things that people kind of skip over that are super important, and that can help your listening comprehension as well. This is something I wish I had early on when I was dealing with R's in Chinese. You know, and some of those other things. But I will say, give a quick plug for this, John. I did see one, I think an intern you had years ago who had used this and did the exercises and stuff. Uh, I, I, there's other exercises I know we have through one of your other programs, but they use this and, and focus on the pronunciation. And it was like within a few weeks, they had drastically improved their pronunciation. So I, it's, it's a great thing you guys want Yeah, that's another thing. Um, No matter how you're practicing, you got to keep doing pronunciation as a long-term thing. It's not like a two-week thing and you're done. Uh, It's a step-by-step thing, so keep doing it. Get that shir, the R out of the shir, and then down to the shir. All right. And where can we find that, John? Okay, so that is at allsetlearning.com. There's a resources link with all of our different wikis, and pronunciation wiki is one of them. All right. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I guess it's a rave. It's a little, it's a little bizarre. But um, I was just, I was just noticing on the street of Shanghai a phenomenon, and then I, I took a picture of it and I put it on my blog. I'll, I'll link to that because you the, show, show us the picture the, right now, John, on this blog. All right, here it is. Oh See it? wow! There it is. Wow, that's amazing. What is it? Okay, so what it is is right now on the streets of Shanghai, certain streets, especially little streets, that used to be lined with these little shops, like these little mom-and-pop shops, whether they're fruit stands or little clothing stores or little Mm. hardware stores or whatever, a lot of them have been kind of shut down by the city government. Um, They're not Mm. allowed to take up the sidewalk anymore. And the space where they used to have their shops, they get bricked up. It becomes part of the building that it's next to. So what I think is really interesting, and this is kind of a testament to the Chinese entrepreneurial spirit and also the always finding that, that point of flexibility between the law and, and, and practice, <laughs> you know, what you can actually do. Push it as far as they can. <laughs> yeah, you see these shops with windows, and they just operate out of the window. You, don't, you can't go in the shop. And then a few of them have a little footstool so you can climb through the window to get into the shop. <laughs> Because they're not, yeah, because they're not allowed to have a door uh, on that wall because the city won't let them. But the city isn't stopping them from putting a footstool in front of the window, and you can see that there's a shop in there. So I I just think that's, it's ridiculous, but it's kind of cool and funny all at the same time. I love the resourcefulness, man. I I, I remember this little alleyway once. It's on Ulumuchi Lu right down there. And you couldn't stand sideways you know, and extend your elbows out. You, 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 it's too narrow. And some dude set up like a, put a little roof over it and, and was selling like guotier, you know, little fried dumplings out of that thing. I'm like, what? No way. So resourceful. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Fun stuff. So, so, you know, Shanghai continues to modernize and some of that is tearing down the old stuff that we find, you know, interesting. But, uh, you know, the resourcefulness goes on and there's plenty of interesting thing here in China. If any of us can, can get back but um yeah one day john. eventually right one day we'll be back okay together john okay so jared rant or rave okay i have a rave today um and this came in an email uh from a listener named shelly Rivas. and shelly she was telling us about her language program it was actually sponsored by her state north carolina and they as part of i guess their uh, chinese language program they have a language partner program. So they'll specifically take any of the students that are in the program and they will find a language partner for you in China and uh, allow you, help you facilitate uh, to have these language conversations with your language partner. And I got to say, like, I was really impressed by this because I'm frankly, John, I'm, I'm not aware 
uh, I, I've encountered many, many, many Chinese programs, and I'm not aware of any who are like, that's like part of their program. You know what I mean? It's like part of the program, you're going to get a language partner, and you're going to be assigned to this. I mean, I know there's going to be some out there. But I think it's a great thing uh, because it allows you know someone to practice their English with you, and you get to practice your, practice your Chinese. And it, it's one of those things that facilitates cross-cultural communication, and you get to improve your Chinese. Uh, and it's such a great thing. So I, I'm a fan of those language partners. They don't always work out, uh, and you know sometimes you need to find new ones. Uh, but I think uh, I think it's a great thing. And if any of you have that opportunity to do that or make that part of a program, whether that's something you're participating in or something you're developing for yourself, like hey, this is my study regimen and part of it's a language partner. Do that. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, actually, when I was a student at the University of Florida, I got one of these um, these language partners, and I think it was through the English Language Institute. These are these are grad students who are studying at the university, but their English isn't that good. And so he was my first Chinese language partner that I had my first semester of Chinese when I could barely speak. So it wasn't really speaking practice, but actually I'm still in touch with this guy today. And when I did go to China, he set me up. Like he found me a job Whoa. in Hangzhou where I wanted where I wanted to go. Nice. Yeah, like uh and uh you know, I've met him in recent years and uh my wife really likes him. He's a really cool guy. Um yeah, it, it, it's great. So even if it's online, <laughs> you know, in person is nice. But even if it's online, you never know the benefits that come from these types of relationships. Totally. And who's your language partner these days, John? My wife. I knew it. You married your language partner. You're one of those guys. My name is Gabrielle Barnett, and I am from Montego Bay, Jamaica. However, right now, I'm currently an MBA student at Asia School of Business in collaboration with MIT Sloan. You know, we all have different chances or opportunities that come our way in life. Some of those we seize and others we may let pass. Gabrielle's story is one where she took an opportunity, turned it into something greater, and forever altered the trajectory of her life. Stay with us. Why did you start learning Chinese? When I was younger, I was very interested in Chinese food, Chinese culture, and I'd always go to this like restaurant in Jamaica, and there was this chef that was really fascinated with me, and he would always like talk to me and you know like give me extra food, but yeah. we could not understand each other at all. Like there was just like. Our communication was just like me pointing to stuff and stuff like that. We were creating our own sign language before we even knew what sign language was, right? So in Jamaica, we have grade 12 and 13, and we refer to that as college. So when I was going to college, I was talking to my aunt, and she's just like, you know, you're going to start applying to U.S. universities pretty soon. What are you doing in your free time? Like, how do you spend your time? Like, you know, you need to make sure that you're a very competitive applicant. And I was just like, yeah, you know, I watch TV, I buy Chinese food, you know, like play a couple of games. I speak Spanish. And she's just like, Chinese, give me a second. And then she was just like, hey, you like Chinese food? How do you feel about learning the language? And I was just like, sounds great. And she's like, all right, awesome. Give your mom the phone. We need to get you a ticket. Gonna enroll you in like a summer camp. Right. Wow. So I was just like, oh, if I learn Chinese, I can like talk to the chef, become the best of friends, and probably I can even get more food, right? So um, <laughs> to cut a long story short is I learned Chinese. I came back and I realized that I was speaking Mandarin and I went to him and I was like, ni hao. He, was, he looks at me and he's just like, le hao. And I was just like, oh my God, he speaks Cantonese. <laughs> Back up, though, a little bit. I, I want to hear, like, you went to, like, a summer camp for the summer? I mean, where did you go? What, what was this like? It was called Star Talk. Oh, yeah. That's a program here in the United States. Yes, it is. Yeah. And they have it at multiple different universities. And mm -hmm. when I went to the camp, <laughs> I think I was probably the only person who had zero exposure to Chinese. A lot of my classmates were either heritage speakers so this was not a beginner's class. 
<laughs> it was definitely not. It, they had no idea where to place me, but my aunt was super adamant. They were like, she has to learn Mandarin. And my aunt Claudette, she's a powerhouse, right? She will get her yes. She's going to learn Mandarin. Like, this is definitely going to happen. And I was just like, all right, okay. And they were like, all right. So I guess we'll put her in novice one. Well, what did you think about this? And when did that motivation even turn to you finding your own motivation to learn as opposed to maybe what your aunt or parents wanted for you? When I started, it was more so of just like, I really want to learn how to talk to the chef so I could get more food. Um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, I'm really motivated by food. So I was just like, you know, if I could learn <laughs> to talk to this guy and like get more food, this would be a win-win situation for me, right? <laughs> but then when I attended the camp and I started to learn the intricacies of like the language and the culture and how they're like so woven together, and it was so interesting and fascinating to really get um, a way to kind of like see and interact with a whole new world. So I grew up in Jamaica, you know, I, I mentioned that earlier, but like Jamaica is really culturally diverse, but we're so diverse in the way that we're like really a melting pot. So we do have Chinese people in Jamaica. We do have Indians. We have people from Europe. Most Jamaicans are descendants from, you know, enslaved Africans, but we are so mixed together that Unless you recently came to Jamaica similar to that chef, we refer to ourselves as Jamaican. So you will see like mm. a Chinese person in Jamaica and you're like, oh, this person probably speaks Mandarin or Cantonese or Hawking or one of these many languages. And they'll look at you and be like, no, I'm Jamaican. I don't know what you're talking about. Basically, like, no, I'm not way at top boats. Me a Jamaican. You know, like all of that. Like, my youths. You know? So having the opportunity to really get to like learn something super foreign it was very interesting to me and then like i was 16 so there was also the cool factor oh like i speak spanish i speak french <laughs> i speak chinese yeah yeah <laughs> okay you went to this camp but where did things go from there where you said hey i i want to keep learning this i remember when i started the camp and as i mentioned before like everyone had some exposure to mandarin and i was coming in like brand new knowing nothing I was in the novice class and I was 16 and the next person that was eldest, I think he was like five or six. <laughs> so <laughs> you can just imagine, you know, that nice little setup, like a 16 year old with like five, six year olds, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, it was a huge hit to my ego. But everybody in the class, they were picking up the language really quickly because many of them, they were from Somerville and they were either adopted from China or their families had immigrated to the United States and they were learning Mandarin for how to read and how to write in you know, like a more formal setting. And I was just there from Jamaica. I know Spanish, but like that's very far from Mandarin. And I was trying to apply like how I learned Spanish to Mandarin, but then I hadn't realized it was a whole different ball feel. So there was this one girl, she was half Puerto Rican, half Chinese. And she saw me struggling and, you know, she came over to me and she was just like, you know, oh, it's okay. I understand what you're going through. I have to like juggle Spanish and Mandarin at home. So how about I teach you how to count from one to 10? And she couldn't really explain the concept of tones to me because, you know, as I mentioned, she's a heritage mm -hmm. speaker. So she kept saying to me, like, just say it exactly how I say it. And if you don't say it exactly how I say it, people will make fun of you because you'll be saying something else. And I was just wow. like, interesting. She was just like, yeah, yeah, there's so many ways to say one thing, but you have to say it exactly like this to say this particular word. And I was just like, oh, okay. All right. So, you know, I would just imitate exactly how she would say things and exactly how the teacher would say things. And I remember uh -huh. one time the teacher would be like, oh my God, your accent is so great and whatever. And I was just like, oh, you know, this is working. This, this is gold. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds, sounds like an amazing little tutor for you <laughs> i know i know i know it was it was definitely a very humbling experience and my second breakthrough i think was the first time i had a conversation with someone so let me just preface this by saying it's not like a full-on conversation we really just talk for like maybe a minute but it felt like forever uh -huh. because i was just like oh my god <laughs> this is happening 
So <laughs> during the program, they took us to Chinatown in Boston, and we were just supposed to like find people and like try to start a conversation. And everybody was just excelling. Everybody was doing it, you know, flawlessly. No one was having issues. But I was just like, oh my God, like, I'm going to have to talk to somebody. I'm going to say the wrong word. I'm probably going to cuss somebody out and don't even realize it. Like, <laughs> this is going to be disaster. And then I saw this old guy and he was just like really intrigued by my hair. And he was just like, oh, need a tofa. And I was just like, oh, oh, he's saying here. He's saying here. Oh, my God. This is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to happen. I understand what he's saying. And then I went over to him and, you know, we were talking. And to be honest, I understood like maybe 70% of what he was saying. You know, he's older. He has a very heavy accent. He's not really mm -hmm. enunciating well. But yeah. I felt so accomplished. And I became like this big celebrity because like uh, I was the only <laughs> wow. black student. And then when I told them I'm from Jamaica, they were just like, oh, Bob Marley, you know, they were like, <laughs> oh, gosh. Like, and then all of his little, you know, like old people, they're always in groups played mahjong or talking all the old people friends they just all came and surrounded me and everyone wanted to say at least one word with me and like sometimes all i could say was like mm, mm, how that how that how that and they were just like oh. and i'm just like oh. <laughs> this is so, oh, that's so fun that yeah cute. i became that was really like cute. A, a celebrity it was like a real boost to my ego and really something that made me say, like, you know what? When I go to college, this is definitely something I want to continue. And then I went to my aunt and I was just like, yeah, so can I go back next year? And she was just like, <laughs> yeah, great, sure. We can definitely make it happen. But what? where did things go from there? To I mean, now you're doing an MBA and you're in Asia. So tell me a little more about kind of what happened from there. So after doing the camp another summer, I decided to continue it in undergrad. And then I went to Mount Holyoke College. And where's that at? It's in South Hadley, Massachusetts. I decided to minor in Mandarin. And then I remember my first year, my Chinese professor was just like, you have so much vocabulary and your pronunciation is so great, but why can't you read? Ooh, Characters. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Because, you know, at the camp, I was with kids and I was in the novice class. So we were only doing pinyin. So when I went to Mount Holyoke, we had Chinese classes every day for, I think, maybe like an hour and a half. And then they really tried to drill in characters. There were so many assignments. There were so many like writing assignments, recording assignments, reading assignments. We had a lot of dictation exams and stuff. So they sound like they really drilled characters into you. But how effective was that for you? I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of different ways of trying to pound them into you, so to speak. So when I thought about like my experience learning characters and like writing over and over and over and over again, I think they were trying for us to develop muscle memory. But, you know, if I'm just writing it over and over again for my assignment and then I move on to do something else, that muscle memory was not really building. So I was trying to think, how can I learn how to memorize these characters without it becoming like a chore or a task, but something that I can definitely remember? And I remember as a kid, my siblings and I, we would always try to play a game of like who can walk around the house without running into anything, right? So it was mm -hmm. basically memorizing the layout of our home. And I thought about it and I was just like, the way I was able to do that was because I was seeing it every day. So I mm -hmm. thought to myself, if I could put Chinese characters around me every day and I'm seeing it, it will become like second nature to me. So I had like post-its that I would put on like my door or anywhere in like my dorm room that my roommate would allow and wouldn't be like freaked out about it. <laughs> Get these post-it notes out of exactly. here. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but luckily now she thought it was kind of cute. She thought it was like zen and like feng shui. And that's really how I started memorizing characters by like seeing it more often. Mm. So even if I didn't remember the car stroke order or anything like that, I definitely remember like what it's supposed to look like. And I think that was like a nice step in the right direction. So after that, I studied abroad in China my first summer at Mount Holyoke. And that was just a really amazing experience. I, I think that gave me 
what I needed to really propel my language learning because similar to what I was doing in the United States, you know, like really intensive classes. That's what I was doing in China, except it was every day. So like mm. nine to five Chinese classes every day. And then every Friday we'd have like an exam. And then if I want anything, if I want to do anything, I'd have to talk to the people around me. So it really fast tracked everything because I was, I was placed in this environment where if I wanted to survive, if I wanted to swim, I needed to learn how to speak and I needed to get over feeling like I'm going to make mistakes or make a couple mistakes and, you know, laugh it off and, mm -hmm. you know, not be embarrassed. If I say, I want to ask you a question, but instead of saying, I want to ask you a question, I say, I want to kiss you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because I've seen people may go to study abroad, but sometimes they're still in that English bubble, right? And maybe they get true. the most out of it. Because, you know, the research really shows is that you need explicit instruction, but you also need an equal way to balance of just practice, you know, mm -hmm. of what it is you're learning. It sounds like you were using those outside classroom experiences or that time to really practice what you were learning. And I think also, like, being just like a tall black woman in China, everybody has questions. So how tall are you then? I I've got to know. I'm 5'9", 176 centimeters uh -huh. yeah definitely tall for china for sure <laughs> yeah definitely definitely and i have like really long limbs so i i did stick out like a sore thumb in china well t tell me because i mean i know what it's like i'm a white male and i you know i've lived in china many years and i know what that's like for me but how do you think of your experience as being a black female on the tall end was in China compared to maybe what your experiences are the other peers? Sure. So in the beginning, you know, it was so easy for me to have conversations because as soon as I get into a taxi, because back then we didn't have DD, they'd start looking at me and then, they'd, you know, there'd be that awkward silence because we could see each other looking at each other. And then they'd say slowly, <laughs> 你会说中文吗? And I'd be like, mm, mm, and then they're just like, oh, okay. Then they have so many questions. You know, like, where are you from? Why is your color like that? Like, why is your hair like that? Like, okay, tell me more. And then they'd like slow down the car just so that they could have time to ask questions. And, you know, like sometimes my classmates would get annoyed by this, but I'll be like, oh my God, guys, this is like practice. These are people who know no mm -hmm. English. Their accents are super authentic. They're not going to be like, oh, 我想去北门. They're going to be like, oh, 你想去哪里? 你想去哪? <laughs> <laughs> you know so you're just like oh yeah. okay all right so you know you have to get used to accents and like this is good a lot of people would want to take pictures i remember someone took a picture of me when we went to the great wall and there was legitimately a long line of people just waiting to take photos with me <laughs> people hand you babies Yes, I got a lot yes. of babies. Yeah, I got yeah, a lot of yeah. babies. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm like a celebrity. I'm like holding babies. <laughs> um, until one baby like pooped, you know, and baby wasn't wearing a diaper. So. <laughs> yes, yes, that's... <laughs> Not uncommon, right? You got the split pants in the back, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. baby boy pooped right in my hand. And I was just like, all right, this is the end of me holding babies. But I feel like being a black woman in China, it's very different for everyone. It's a mixed experience. I can say that mine was mostly positive. Of course, there are a lot of negative experiences as well. But being able to speak Mandarin definitely made it a little bit easier. So like, I remember once I was in China, I was in like a shared DD. And there was mm -hmm. this lady at the front and then they didn't know I could speak Mandarin. So I had gotten in, I was in the car, I'd gotten to the back and then, you know, I shared Didi along the way. He picked up somebody else. She got into the front. And then, you know, as soon as he got to the front, like he adjusted his rearview mirror and, you know, he started to look at me and then he looked at the lady and then they were like talking like, you know, where do you think she's from? And, you know, this lady was speaking so confidently, like she's from Kenya. I know, because, you know, I've lived in Africa before. She's from uh -huh. Kenya, you know, and this is what people in Kenya and like. And, you know, she's given a nice historical account of of my life. And I was just like, this is fascinating <laughs> stuff. Wow. So I grew up with tigers. Oh, tell me more. Probably was, you know, like 
having amnesia or sleeping through my entire childhood experience. <laughs> yeah, this is how it um, <laughs> And then when I was came out, I was like, all right, 再见. And I was just like, 我不是非洲人,我是亚白家的. And then she was just like, oh my God. And her face, like, I had never in my life seen somebody turn pink before. And I was uh-huh. just like, oh, so this is not actually a thing. People actually do turn pink. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That sounds like so a embarrassed. So how did you actually get to China? Sure. So after I did the summer study abroad in China, then I went to Spain, I went to Liberia. And when I was graduating, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do next? And I remember I went to one of our career treks. We went to D.C., And I came across this lady and she was speaking Mandarin so fluently. And I was just like, all right, something doesn't add up here because she's a white woman and she's speaking (laughs) Mandarin like she's Chinese. Like, did you have a Chinese nanny? Like, and I spoke to her and then she told me like, oh, I went to Johns Hopkins. There's a campus Mm. in China. I went to SICE. They have a great program Um, there. Yeah. And like learning a substantive topic in Mandarin and really having to communicate beyond like, how are you? you know, talk about food and my favorite pet, like really having the opportunity to talk about like real topics in Mandarin. And I was just like, hmm, fascinating. And she was like, oh, you should definitely go. You know, all you have to do is take this proficiency test and, you know, you'll be fine. I was like, okay, I'm going to take the proficiency test. Yeah, I took the proficiency not? test, you know, I passed and I applied Funny, I actually sent in my application 13 seconds before the deadline because I was like, they're not going to accept me. Like, My Chinese isn't that great. Um, I got accepted. I went to Johns Hopkins. I was at their campus in Nanjing, China. And she was really right. Like learning nuclear policy, statistics, or corporate finance in Mandarin was really one of the most challenging but rewarding experiences that I had. Mm. So I remember we had one professor and uh, I'm not sure what part of China he's from, but the first day of class, he's just like, and I was just like, what you mean by <laughs> So for listeners, okay, like some accents, you know, koying, instead of saying shi, they're say si. So this guy's probably from the south, I'm assuming. Yeah, he yeah. was. And I was just like, what do you mean by that, sir? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> so not only was I learning all these great things, but I was also learning how to decipher different accents, different pronunciations, really putting myself in an environment where I had to present. And it wasn't presenting about like, you know, like it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah. It was me talking about like, this is how such a policy would have an effect on like the Caribbean. Substantial topic, something of weight, of substance, right? Yeah. So it really made me realize that, yeah, I could speak Mandarin, but I couldn't really speak Mandarin, you know? So after doing the program, after struggling, I decided that I wanted to stay in China a little bit longer because I really wanted to really build on something that I'd invested so much of my time and energy on. So I decided to work in China. At first, I was working in management consulting. I was working at this little boutique firm. But then I realized that they really wanted me because I spoke English and not so much because I spoke Mandarin. So I decided Mm -hmm. to switch to educational consulting. And the company I was working with, they had just opened an office in Beijing. And they were really looking for like a bilingual speaker. And I fit the profile. So I was really talking to a lot of like clients that their children are fluent English speakers. You know, they go to the international schools. They were born abroad. But Mm -hmm. at home, they only speak Mandarin because the parents just did Mm -hmm. not learn English. So and the parents, they're really invested. They really want to be involved in their child's educational future. So they have a lot of questions and they need somebody that could really answer those questions. How do you see Chinese being a part of your future career? It's really still a part of my life today. And I don't see that changing. Like even the other day when I was going to get a pedicure, or get a facial, you know, because in Malaysia, there's a large Chinese population. My driver was Chinese. The person that was doing my nails, she was Chinese. And, you know, when she heard I lived in Beijing, she just had so many questions. And we were just talking in mm. Mandarin for the entire time I was doing my pedicure. She gave me extra like gel nail polish 
which I was oh, really of happy course. about, by the way. Of course. <laughs> it started out with food. Now it's with extra nail polish. I know. I know. I'm all here for all the extras. <laughs> but what I'm noticing is that China is slowly but surely, if not already, depending on who you ask, becoming a superpower. They are investing everywhere. You know, they want to go out and they want to like get involved in every sector of the economy. And to really become successful, to really set yourself apart, understanding the people with whom you're working with, understanding their culture, understanding a little bit about the history really helps to make the relationship a lot smoother, make it a lot easier. All right. So, Gabrielle, it sounds like you've had a lot of opportunities to use your Chinese, but, you know, I know that it doesn't always go so smoothly. I mean, do you have any experiences like that where it was a really challenging experience to use your Chinese where you translate or try to do something? Kind of going back to like when I worked in Beijing and they were looking for this Mandarin speaker. So I wasn't always super confident in speaking Mandarin, especially when I didn't have a lot of time to prepare and like go over the tones and make sure everything is nice and polished. But we had someone in our office and he was Chinese and he was out sick that day. My boss came in and he was just like, oh, shoot, we have a parent. You know, this is a VIP parent. We need a translator. Then he looked at me, he was like, Gabby, you speak Mandarin. All right, come into the room and translate. And I was just like, what do you mean by come into the room and translate? So I was just like, yeah, sure, I can do that. You know, like no one's going to see me sweat, right? I remember <laughs> sitting down and I was trying to translate in verbatim. And it was the most difficult experience I ever had, you know. But I think the parent was just in such awe that like, oh, wow, she speaks Mandarin. And, you know, she's from Jamaica. This is this is fascinating that they didn't hear my mistakes. They didn't see me fumble. But I forgot how to say simple words. I forgot how to say like book. I for you know, like I was just there like, <laughs> how do you say book again? You know, like, how do you say shoe? Like, how do you say study? Like, I was just, I was just really there, like struggling. But one thing I did like about the parent is that they spoke very little English, but just enough for me to describe things for them and then like put in the English word and they'd be like, oh, this is what you're trying to say. So, you know, after that experience, and then also kind of just like reflecting about it, you know, like when you're translating, people don't need to hear verbatim, they just need to hear what's being communicated, and the most important part of the message. Well, Gabrielle, if you could go back and talk to that 16-year-old Gabrielle and give her a piece of advice, what would you tell her? So I think I would say don't be afraid to make mistakes and try to immerse yourself as much as possible. I think in the beginning, you know, I had my little wins. I had that conversation with a guy in Chinatown, and it made me feel good about myself. But even up until the point of working in Beijing, you know, after like finishing Johns Hopkins and feeling like, oh, I can write that I'm fluent, you know, there were still a lot of times that I was hesitant to speak to really put myself out there. So I think just saying like, you know, like, get over it, like everybody makes mistakes, you're gonna make some, and that's fine. The most important thing is just learn from it and talk. Because people have questions and you have some answers. So talk, you know, and just enjoy the entire journey. I, I feel like I did, but I feel like especially in college, there were times where I was like, oh, my God, I need to study because if I don't, I'm going to get an A and, you know, my GPA in my life. But really taking time to, like, enjoy the process a lot more and think of it as an experience and less so as, like, a letter grade. And then I also got to know your aunt. On a scale of 1 to 10, how proud is she of you nowadays? You know, Jamaicans have a thing. It's always about, like, mentioning, like, oh, did you know about my daughter? Did you know about <laughs> my niece? But I talk to her ever so often. And, you know, she's always somebody who likes to reflect. She's like, you know, who would have thought that you would be here today? Who would have thought that? you know, attend in this camp, because let me just put this out there. So even though I attended the camp, and my other cousins also attended the camp. So mm. I wasn't the only one, like my aunt just started like a funnel, like I'm gonna give you guys some Jamaicans, and these people are gonna be fresh from the island, and they're all gonna be related. <laughs> so of all of my cousins, I'm the one that took Mandarin the furthest. And uh, you know, she'd always think like, who'd have thought that 
by learning this language, it would open so many doors, you'd have so many different experiences, like, because even like my job in China, when I got it, it was really because during the interview, I was in the taxi, and the driver had no idea where to go. So he's just like, what you you know, and I was just like, oh my God, I'm having an interview. And I had to tell him, like, give him directions as to where I was going while I was having the interview. So constantly apologizing. But the person with whom I was having the interview with, he was just like, oh, wow, your accent is really good. Like, you actually understand this guy. This is great. Can you get started next Monday? Like, you know, is that possible? Because we're really looking for somebody who can actually speak the language. Because a lot of people write that they could speak Mandarin, but they can't really speak Mandarin. You know what I'm saying? So it has really opened a lot of doors for me, given me a lot of opportunities. And she's just basking in the fact that like she really pushed for me to attend. She really motivated me to stay throughout it all, even when I was very embarrassed that I was in a kid in a class with uh, toddlers. Thanks for sharing that, Gabrielle. Because it's like the thing I always look at is that Chinese has changed my life. Chinese has changed your life. And for just about every guest I've had on this show, Chinese can be a life-changing experience and it can open up these doors that you wouldn't be able to open any other way. Yeah. Gabrielle, thanks so much for sharing your experience with us. It's been really insightful and uh, really enjoyed this discussion. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, designer, pianist, therapist, diva, gamer, illustrator, bridesmaid, coach, and that one guy named Marshall. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Kuo at SubChina. And our interview editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. I'd like to thank our guest, Gabrielle Barnett. And of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Patton. See you next time.